0: From the Architecture Foundation, I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. I was in Berlin this past February on a study trip with my teaching partner, Andrea Anderrigo, and our students from the RCA to look at different kinds of adaptive reuse schemes. And one of the projects we visited was this former industrial site on the eastern edge of the city called San Gimignano-Lichtenberg, otherwise known as the Office of the Architectural Practice B+. And before I tell you about b I want to give you a picture of this place. It's about an hour and a half outside the city center, and it's located in a former energy production site that was partially demolished after the fall of the Berlin Wall. What remains are two gigantic concrete cores, which were just too expensive to demolish, and which are now surrounded by one-story halls occupied by Pakistani and Vietnamese wholesalers. We visited on a rainy day, and the place felt barren and windswept, with these two tall concrete cores standing as surreal and vaguely urban ruins. It's kind of hard to imagine how an office could even exist in one of them. There's no lift, and you have to climb countless flights of stairs to reach the workspace at the top, because the core has this huge void in the middle formerly used to store gigantic graphite rods. In fact, no banks would loan B-plus the money to develop the Lichtenberg site, until the practice ingeniously rebranded it as San Gimignano, after the medieval town famous for its many towers. This ability to sway opinion and reshape public desire feels so much a part of b as a practice. And their work takes on many forms of what could almost be thought of as a kind of propaganda, from political campaigns to publications and exhibitions, and perhaps most notably a series of films in collaboration with the director Christopher Roth, Films that explore how the politics and legislation of architecture can themselves be a viable object of design. Most recently, B-plus are leading a design studio at ETH, which has styled itself as a kind of television studio, generating speculative and polemic content in order to drive and reshape architectural debate. The B in B-plus stands for Arno Brandel Huber, who's been a core member of the office in its various incarnations, from his early collaborations with Zamp Kelp and Julius Krauss to his work with Bernd Knies as B&K+. Plus. From 2006, the practice was called Brandel Huber Plus before simply rebranding as B-Plus in 2021. And it's clear that Brandel Huber is slowly stepping back to make space for a new generation. He now works with Olaf Grauert, Jonas Janke, Roberta Jeršič and Jolene Lee, four partners who each have equal stake and are surprisingly young, all born in the late 80s or early 90s. I recorded this conversation with Brandel Huber and Juršić during the student visit I mentioned in February of 2023 and we cover everything from the evolution of the practice, its influences, and the strategies it deploys to in turn reshape the practice of architecture.
1: All right, so here's the interview. Let's say we started in the 90s, No. When this kind of, these this heroes of architecture with their name became influential, no? Maybe it was before, or after the supermodels came into naming, no? Like, whether it's Naomi or however you can name them all through. And we thought, why is it always that it's based on your name? No? If you would take the Build Environment Series, then it should be dedicated to the buildings that have an ability to talk, to communicate, to, to tell a story about why they would like to function in a very specific way. And that's the, the means of communication you have. No, it's normally the piece of architecture. So you have to embed somehow the storytelling within the project itself. And we find out sometimes you have to help a little bit, but in the end it's all about our belief in that we are not a service provider, but that we contribute to kind of current discussion. But maybe you could could, could widen that.
2: I think it's also this, what you briefly said, what was in 90s, what in 90s started to have a, a name and a practice around this name and then every architect knows what is actually happening in the background, that it's not always one name. And especially in the bigger offices, you hear stories that the very name never even saw the projects that are coming out of the office. I think it's kind of outdated and not maybe so contemporary anymore. So in these terms, I think, like, what is the perspective? I started to work in the office, and then what you leave the office to open another office with a wish that this new office will gain a reputation or the name. I think the whole narrative is based on kind of wrong premise. So, if within this one office there is a will or opportunity that you can combine and merge different aspects, then it's just like a, let's say, a fruitful growing together versus this marriage and divorce into Mm -hmm. two parts
0: and then continuing somewhere. I mean, there's five people, essentially, five core members now who are also co-directors. But was it it larger before? And was there a shift in scale? And what decisions govern that?
1: Mm, Yeah, there were a lot of shifts. Uh (laughs) There were some bankruptcies in between and everything you can have, no? Like this... And you can say, up to 10, if you, if you work in this kind of top-down structure, you can handle up to 15 people very well. Then it's starts that you should have a second layer, no? Let's say, one at the top, so CEO C, O, whatever you name yourself, and then you have like... And then this jump means you should have at least around 80 to... Now we would say 100 people, that this is sufficient, no? That the second layer is paying off. No, and then if you look now the offices that really are into, let's say, into very positive numbers no, at the end of the year, if you do the calculation, mostly you name them with three letters. A lot of them are based in Scandinavia and England. And they maybe function between 400 and 2,000 people the logic they have is completely different. It's clear, no? If a project comes in with a certain amount of honorar, it's calculated how many hours can be spent on that, on what level of, let's say, within the office. And if this time is taken, the project is finished. It's basically a very, let's say, economic-driven thing, and we were much more interested in doing whatever we would like to do. And that's maybe one of the reasons, yeah, and we have been maybe up to 40 people in a certain uh, period when we were three partners and we found out, oh, it's not really, it's not that we gain more. It's just that we organize ourselves much more and uh, in the end we don't work on what we really would like to work on. There was maybe three years ago or four years ago till one year ago, we also do collaborations with other offices, you no, know, like with Mukpetzit. And now you will see in the next half year, the first one is coming out and then the next one over the next two years, which is already a size between let's say 20 and 200 millions euro for a project. And then we discovered, oh, how easy is that, you know, to collaborate also with other offices. No, you don't have to contain it all in your own practice, in your own studio. Uh, we did some projects now starting with with even much bigger offices that have like competence that we do not even have, no, when it comes to cost calculation, just as one example. They are so precise and so well-trained, and they have this whole apparatus behind. So, and we know where we are, let's say, have some advantages towards others, no? Because we're more related to current cultural practices, basically.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah, I think it's kind of instead of having everything inside the house, let's call it that way, it's like collaborating. I think it's nice how you can see it's always a Christmas dinners, no? Which are way, way bigger because we always invite all the collaborators that we collaborated within one year and then it's, then you can see the actual amount of people that work on the projects that made them possible.
0: So it's become a much leaner and more agile office because you establish partnerships when they're necessary and then detach when the collaboration has ended. And it also seems like it it connects you more deeply to a broader network of specialists in a wide range of fields as well. I kind of want to shift away from the subject of practice management and talk more about narrative as it relates to how we understand what you do. (laughs) Um, And I mean, every architect has, every person has some kind of mythology around their formation as an individual and their formation as a practice. And oftentimes, even though it's not the very first project, um, one of the first projects in the office comes up again and again as a way of trying to frame a certain attitude or interest. And you know what I'm going to say. It's the Neanderthal Museum, maybe. I think the reason I bring that up though is because there's a kind of interest in the primordial, I think, and also a kind of, I think, fascination with regulations, rules and obedience and disobedience. And of course, pre-modern time, seems to exist in a way outside of all of that. It seems to be a place outside of, outside of rules. If we think of the Neanderthals' environment, it really is the cave, and the cave is a space um, that exists prior to norms. So, I don't know if there's um, I kind of sense you're maybe not agreeing with this, <laughs> or you're mulling it. Okay, Do you buy it. that reflection of the mythology of the practice?
1: Okay, give, I would try to give three, maybe four answers. The first is the Neanderthal man had to calculate whether staying with the whole tribe in the cave they had or to search out for another one. So you can just estimate how they organized that. Maybe two were running and running and running, looking for another one, or the whole tribe went with them. But still, this calculation on a possible better version of where you are in. No, that's already a kind of very modern take. Okay, my second answer is the Neanderthal Museum is one of the stupidest, the most stupid, maybe narrative we ever created, and therefore I changed directly after that project to a completely different work to to continue. Because the narrative that's embedded in the Neanderthal Museum is, no, it's a spiral coming out of the earth and it's ending in the now, no? As mankind would have developed from the dark to the light and to a lightning, let's say. But the Neanderthal man died out 60,000 years ago. So the whole story was based on a wrong model. So therefore, it became a nice object, but an object that you couldn't learn something out of because the narrative that's embedded in the object itself, you know, the spiral coming out from, you know, from down to up, you can't learn from that because that was wrong. It's
0: funny, though. Because yeah. <laughs> there's an obsolescence in there that's also built into your presence in the practice, where. Your literally the name is diminishing and eventually, I imagine, it will disappear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a kind of planned extinction, I feel, which
1: seems like it may be part of the game. And as you started the question that there's always the first project in the game, I would say the first project is, and that was a very, let's say, aware decision, no. what is the first project to name, what has the number one. Mm-hmm. And we discussed it for sure. And we could have started with the Neanderthal Museum, because what would that mean? A practice that has as a first project the Museum of Mankind might have a good future, no? But to go back and name the first project the working space you, basically made by your hands is already a decision. No? and to overcome this kind of object-driven logic of the Neanderthal Museum.
2: But I also think that actually the first one, the Arbeitsraum, is actually the project that contains unintentionally back then, but today when we look back at it, it kind of has all the elements that we still find important to, let's call it a B-plus practice.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, if Arbeitsraum is the first project, I wonder if we could Just quickly unpack it because I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with it here and listeners may not be as well. But this was the conversion of an empty storage shed uh, to a communal studio. And it was a do-it-yourself construction. You used glass panels from a building site in Frankfurt, which were the leftovers of a skyscraper's new facade. And the money that you saved was used to reduce the rent uh, for the artists using the space. And of course, this does encapsulate an attitude that we see brought up right to the present.
1: And it also, maybe a very important point is, so the facade is not something that we could design, no? In this manner, okay, should it be regular, should it be? It was driven by the panels of glass we got, and then you try to make these panels fit and you find an old door from a neighbor, and then you bring, and then you have some leftovers, and then you can cut some plywood, little insulation plywood, you make a panel, and that's closing it off. And this is giving the image. So the difference is that the image is not something that we intentionally, by creativity, as we normally know it, or, or whatever school we are coming from now, is giving the image. But the image is coming from circumstances like economic ones, No, they were for free, and we had to in, and, and, and that is following this kind of a different logic. And to make this visible, everybody can reach it, because you, if you look at this facade, you know uh, nobody could have designed it. And now we would say you have a lot of practices now, know that use this kind of patchwork or reuse and all this discussion that came up.
0: What you're describing in terms of the creative process is one that's governed by external factors. But it seems like it's not an internal expression. It's not a charcoal sketch on a piece of paper. It's understanding the excess amount of material, in this case, um, from a building site. It's understanding the um, available funds. It's understanding legislation and then using those parameters to shape the scheme.
2: But I think to some, yeah, you can argue like that, but you can also say it is an inner urge, not necessary to design something with a charcoal, but to answer certain questions that you observe on a day-to-day life. I don't know how to uh, improve someone's life or whatever is happening in uh, social circumstances or a political sphere, you, your urge to answer to it. Maybe usually it's not connected to the architect itself, but you can also as an architect answer to those. Like for instance, what you were mentioning before that on the website, there are different projects and not necessarily a project is a building. You come kind of back to the question, what is architecture? Is architecture to build a building or is it, it can be also whatever it is done that would influence a built environment around us. So sometimes if you design a law, that will make so many changes throughout the city, then maybe this is more of an architecture than to design one attic. But in these traditional terms, yes, you don't deal with a window design and in the other you do. But it's, yeah, looking what has more influence in the end. And I'm not saying that one is better or worse or that they are in the competition, but it's just different way of looking at it.
0: I mean, it's, it's media, and in some cases, it's even a kind of propaganda. It's about persuading a public, persuading a governing body to think differently or decide otherwise about the shape
1: of the city. No, we could question ourselves, why has the right, say, talking politically, mostly the better propaganda than the left? No, it's an interesting question because one is maybe more, uh, let's say, situated in the no, so no migrants, no whatever, no, but the yes is much more difficult to, to make a propaganda about it. Mm. and That's a very tricky point, no? Because even media is on this very, let's say, fast point, so you also have to produce, and that's what we normally try, something that you can tell in 3 seconds and 30 seconds and 3 minutes and half an hour, no? And that's it. But where is it starting with the 3 seconds? So just to make one example, maybe you're going to let's say, go further. Let's say the name San Cimignano Lichtenberg, where we are, was the most important part of the design here. Because when we first asked the banks to finance that, they thought, are you crazy? This- leftovers from industrial side, and never, ever. Then we thought, OK, let's name it San Gimignano-Lichtenberg. No, San Gimignano, this Italian village with its towers, and push it into some art magazines, and then send the art magazines to the bankers, and then go there again and ask for money. And then they would say, ah, San Gimignano-Lichtenberg. For sure, we would like to finance it. So wh- so where is the project now? No? the first moment is just these three seconds. Not that we got to that moment in three seconds, but naming it is already, uh, and you would agree, no? When it comes to Antiville or others, sometimes we don't do it, but if it's necessary to find a claim, that's part of the design, no? Mm. To make things happen, to make it possible to. So I think it's worth now
0: dwelling more on the project we're in and the motivations behind it. I mean, this is a very bizarre place to have an office. Um, it took us all a very long time to get here. And it's a kind of industrial park. It feels a bit hostile to the pedestrian. There very little connected to it in terms of cultural infrastructure. And yet it's here. It persists. It's kind of like, to me, the equivalent of Nagalhaus or something. It's, <laughs> it's here defiantly. And I want to I wanna ask you now about um, a teacher of yours or an academic who is influential to you and you're thinking early on as a student and a young practitioner. And that's Thomas Sieverts. I don't know a lot about him. I suspect a lot of listeners won't either but I sense that his ideas have somehow been fundamental to your own ideology, your own motivations that kind of underpin the the said propaganda that you're proposing now. Could you talk a bit about this idea of the in-between city?
1: Wow. Basically, Tom Sieverts, he came up... He did the research when I was still studying that functions that are normally existed within the city went to the periphery, mostly were the huge highways are crossing you know that a lot of people could come there that it was something he developed maybe in the '80s, and it was a time when, for example, Frankfurt was completely empty in the inner city. The shops were empty, nobody wanted to live there. Berlin was a different situation, it was still closed, but... And he tried to give, to, to formulate a kind of framework to think about that in different ways, no? that qualities can be described even in, the, in something that you would regard as a non... As a, where there's no quality to find at all. No, because people use it, they have pleasure there. So how would you describe it, this kind of difference between, let's say, culturally, between architects and the others, the users of those places, no? And another teacher, I have to say, I once had a grant in Florence, it was Michelucci, he was very old in that time. And let's just tell you, one project he did, and I was very impressed for two reasons. He. A bank bought the marketplace of Volterra, which is a smaller town in Italy. And they wanted to build their bank on the marketplace because they bought it. So he made the drawings, everything. It was a very nice-looking red steel building. And normally, the client in that in the bank, they can't read plans so well, no? They, just the floor plans, their interest it was achieved secretary and and all this kind of diagrams. Then it turned out they started to build it, they finished it, but there was a gap underneath. There was a four-meter gap. And then he said, yeah, but now you have a covered marketplace. And and I thought this kind of thinking, without even asking the client, I thought, wow, that's a really strong attitude. Then he was running out of money, and he wanted to look at it like that, the steel construction that's just holding above, and there was no fire protection. And then they went to court against him, blaming him he should, let's say, finish the building. And he said, well, I'm 80 years old. Go to court. (laughs) Until today, you find it in that way, and it's still used like that. And then you could just say... So, what should we discuss now as a piece of architecture? A nice looking red-colored steel construction, or the fact that the marketplace is still underneath, or that you can even say fuck it, you can go to court. In Italy it takes 10 to 15 years a court case. I'm 80 years old, fine. So, and what's now what's the what would you like to discuss now in the field of architecture? If you discuss it as an object. Then it's just the pure appearance. No, that's how you can learn from. Roberta, your teachers. Let's hear that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I need to think about it. I had a very pragmatic education. I think if I would need to point out someone was Vasa Petrovic. This whole approach of adding certain narrative—it's more like creating this shell. And yeah, just making a space that can host also afterwards different functions, perhaps that comes more
0: into play now when we are
2: talking about this to reuse and uh, existing structures. But I
0: need to think more. Well, I think also it's interesting to to now draw attention to your youth,
2: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> for mm-hmm. lack of a Probably better way, because you were born what in the nineties, nineteen ninety three. And so this is incredibly uncommon, I think, for a director to invite in a much younger generation of co-directors for a practice. And I'm curious from your perspective, what do you do with that? I mean, how much control do you really have (laughs) in the context of B plus and what kind of agendas generationally do you feel like you bring to the work?
2: I think I would, let's try to put this in the, in a story. So I think there are angry teenagers who run away from their parents and uh, want to do everything by their own. So I started to work in the office as an intern. And then let's say normally uh, in my teenage architecture years I would want to go away and do something on my own. But in this case it was... There is obviously an age difference, an experience difference, but this doesn't matter that you cannot have an eye-to-eye talk. No, it's uh, instead of being a boss and uh, someone who works for you, it's more like understanding where is someone coming from and what are their needs, let's say, and then compensating this. So I would say that all of us Contribute something that the younger generation can contribute, and Arno is more uh, holding our hands, let's say, in some way where we became unsure on certain things, and it's just like some kind of healthy relationship going towards somewhere. Uh, in terms of, I think, how much do we have uh, our, how did you formulate it? How much? Well, I
0: just wonder being a director, obviously, you must or the assumption at least Mm -hmm. is that there's a certain amount of control that you have or have earned in the practice in terms of its direction, in terms of its agenda, and in terms of the attitudes that you have as an architect that you somehow want to proliferate within the practice. practice.
2: I would say that when it comes to picking, do we do a certain projects and how do we approach it? We always have more this democratic approach where we vote on things if we, are, if we don't all agree. And then it really depends about the project if it's something that is smaller and we all feel comfortable doing it by ourselves. We kind of more lead and do everything by ourselves and then just have a weekly updates where we sometimes discuss, sometimes not. But generally all design decisions, we like to talk all together. Otherwise, we have a, a lot of like freedom, but this is also what Anna was saying before that the whole collaboration yeah. also when I started in the office, it was never it it never felt like you're working for someone. it was more you do your projects and then we would mm-hmm.
0: all together vote. Do we do it or not I'm just conscious even the way I've asked the question is quite cliche that, yeah. that, that that there must be some ego. There must be some specific identity uh that is individualistic that i'm prying at or trying to understand i don't think that's actually the case in the question though i just think there is always this desire to self-express or articulate through one's work one's mm-hmm. desire i think and that is more the question okay um,
2: I, I think we have a almost a set of rules, how we think or what we agree that our values are and the design comes out based on those values, like um, an example is if we follow a logic of the existing building, there is already pre-described logic in it and we try not to impose our own logic on top of it. So, therefore, none of us (laughs) puts uh, their artistic expression, but we rather try almost like to look what is there what is existing and then this gives us the answer. Of course everything is in the eye of who is looking at this and this is kind of when we have conversations and argue what do we see and what is the narrative or the logic behind the building.
0: I just can't help going back to this idea of the practice itself and how in a way there's a cultural logic to its evolution as well that there are external, again, external factors or influences culturally, there is a desire to collectivize and, to a certain extent, anonymize authorship, uh, to collaborate. And I wonder to what degree, Arno, you feel comfortable discussing these kind of cultural factors that went into embracing a much younger generation of co-directors in the practice.
1: They run faster. the, let's say, no, you get older. It's a very simple thing, mm-hmm. and you change when you get older. Mm-hmm. And you change to the better would be, let's say, experience, and to the worse, that you are completely related and all new, let's say, media that's coming up and how to use it and know, and let's say, to even know about the cultural impact it could have, no? When it comes to certain, let's say, tipping point, we could say something is growing up now, something around the Web 3.0, but I'm not sure whether I could already, let's say, see it so clearly. Then they can. And they go for that. And it's also kind of, how would you like to, if I don't make the stairs up, it's intentionally that there's no elevator. If I won't make it up the stairs, I stay home. It's completely simple.
0: I'm looking at the image behind you, which I think is a scan of mold spores that grew on the walls of a basement of one of your projects, a basement that you intentionally flooded for an exhibition called Archipel in 2012. And the imagery I remember from that feature a group of men around a table wearing business suits and they're sitting having a meeting, but they're sitting in a pool of water in the basement. <laughs> and there's also other images of rooms just full of rubble or dirt. And this is the kind of three second experience of a much more elaborated and intellectually dense project that has some relationship to OM Unger's and this idea of the green archipelago. I wanna understand this archipelago project more. I wanna understand this image behind you of these mold spores and the kind of rhetorical project there.
1: Okay. It's in a much wider, let's say, discussion embedded so Berlin let's say was more or less bankrupt and they had what we can, you know the Troika in, in Greece you know they had like a control system not to spend any more money therefore they had to sell their own property like schools that were not used in that times, crowns. so basically they sold out the public property of Berlin and I thought might be stupid, not if you're growing again and you need the school again, then you don't have school or you can't develop yourself. Or if the private hand is clever enough to buy those grounds, maybe the value is higher, then why should you give it away, dear city? So we try to fight them. And one of the research things was, and it, because art functioned in that time very well to, to communicate. And the artists were in that moment already, let's say, thrown out of their cheap, let's say, studios, or further out of Berlin, no? To the next string, to the next string. You, you know it from London, from everywhere, no? So, and so we did in two institutions uh, exhibition, and one was we flooded our own building that we had built, that we already also owned, we flooded it and we had conversations with real, insta- uh, real estate developers and everything. They just put on this building site, gummistiefel, how we call them. this.
0: builds, yeah.
1: And it already changed their whole behavior, you know, even with ministers. and It really changed their whole behavior. And as we flooded our own, it was well, not high, maybe five to ten centimeters, all the dry walls. No, that the gallery had put in were in the water, and after some weeks you could have some effect no, in the walls, in the plaster, which is this, fung- this fungus. fungus, no? fungus. Gold, yeah. And that's already, let's say, as an image, it's referring to the archipelago system no, of, of Ungers that he had developed. No, the writing came from, not from Ungers himself, but from the young Kohlhaas. Also, to be clear, no? this kind of thinking was basically a Kohlhaas thinking when he was collaborating with Ungers in that time. And the idea was, if a city is shrinking, it was a Berlin-based project, let's say, a research project. If the city is shrinking, why should it be so dysfunctional? Why don't we say, okay, we will have little cities within the archipelago, and the rest is becoming a huge park. Well, that was basically the archipelago idea. And then you have other ones like archipelago uh, theory, let's say, when it comes to that every archipelago contains the knowledge of everything but just but still can have a difference to the next island, no? And so on and so on. And we, want, we wanted to focus on the multicentric history of Berlin because it was a multicentric centric uh, Combined because Berlin was made in the 20s out of independent cities. And to focus that it's not coming to this golden middle where the periphery is always falling ahead, we made these two exhibitions. And one was like Travel Falling Down and a publication, which was called From the Stadt der Teile to the Stadt der Teile, aber from the city of parts to the city of participation. And within the art context, it was at that time very easy to spread it, no? They were much better than we were architects with the normally boring magazines in that time, no, which was in terms it would be Bauwelt, mm-hmm. And then you see one project after the other. And yeah, and somehow in the end we managed, even with campaigning and with different means, we managed that the this Liegenschaftsfonds, which was called this entity within the Senate of Berlin that was selling out everything they were closed. And now there's no more selling of public land. Now we only would get leasehold. And now I would ask, let's say, at the time we put into that, you could have made two or three buildings, let's say. But in the end, it's changing much more within the city, than two or three buildings could change. Okay, maybe.
0: Oops. And so, I mean, at the root of this, is an idea of a heterogeneous city. Yeah an overlapping city of cultures, of kinds well, of people and kinds of experiences. It's not longer either or, but more as well.
1: Yes. That's basically what we're working on.
0: And a resistance against privatization, which in effect produces the opposite. Yeah. The kind of compartmentalization yeah. of the city. And so, I mean, this kind of brings us to the contemporary in a way, the kind of current. When we look at Roberta your research interests and the work you're doing with your teaching at ETH, where in addition to this idea of cohabitation amongst people and amongst species, different species as well, you're also interested in the housing shortage in city centers and its connection to the privatization of land. And so your medium is different. It seems like it's no longer to do with images, but it's more time-based media, which is a direct response to your and our native media, which is the internet and its reels and its short short, sharp, shocks of information. And so I'm curious about the teaching now. Why a TV station as an architecture studio?
2: I think this started uh, from another collaboration. It's a, it was a collaboration with Christopher Roth, who is an artist and a filmmaker. and. This also started in the office before I was there, and uh, it started with a trilogy of three movies, mm-hmm. first being a property drama, and then it continued into forming a TV station at the school. The idea behind is how do you communicate architecture to the broader audience, usually architects talking plans and I mean it's also what we were talking earlier but architects talking plans which is not really accessible to let's say a general public so how can we make what we as architects are trying to do more available like usually architecture symposiums it's only architects listening to other architects and talking to each other how great it is but the general public for whom it is stays kind of isolated from the whole discourse and doesn't doesn't have a certain access to it and uh, TV station is an attempt to bring the media to the students and to widen up the, the architecture practice.
0: It sounds like it's an attempt to popularize what might other, otherwise be an obscure architectural discourse, how to render something popular and therefore more effective. Um, at the same time, I mean it's a familiar phenomenon we see in our school as well, where a lot of studios no longer seem to be teaching architecture as we know it, that very rarely now will you see a plan or a section or an elevation or even a building in a studio. And so there's this kind of maybe conservative but still relevant concern about what kind of skills are being imparted and whether or not there's a certain atrophy of um, or hyper-specialization, at least, of the standard skill set of the architect as we previously understood it. And how do you balance that as educators?
2: I mean, the architecture in general, I would say, it is changing. Like, uh, today if we see a percentage of the built environment versus 100 or 200 years ago, it's drastically different. So we can no longer maybe teach only what what it used to be taught in the schools. Also, when I studied, every design studio was exclusively designing new buildings, and then there was like a heritage protection chair that no one really (laughs) wanted to go, that was kind of dealing with the reusing or something. And today, especially with uh, the raised awareness of the climate change, and I don't know if we look, uh, Berlin wants to be climate neutral until 2045, and now there is a referendum to make this until 2030, uh, if this is a perspective in which architects needs to fit in, I think the skill set that I was, let's say, or Arno specifically educated with, that you know only how to build a new building and this is the aim what architects should do. Maybe it's also not not that it's not relevant, but it's, we need also new skills. How do we approach current current political atmosphere and the climate atmosphere that's around us?
0: Maybe as a way of ending, we could talk about 2038, which is a kind of projective project which asks very optimistic questions about the future.
1: No, it's looking back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a, well, you, you explain it.
1: <laughs> no, but then we don't explain it really. It's just, it was just we were invited for a biennial they agree to a biennial. Then we were thinking, normally we would normally complain, no? So 1.5 degrees, we won't make it now to reduce it to that. And, 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 and there's a lot of complaints. And on the other hand, we would say, always it's but, but, but. It's so annoying. So what if we say, looking back from 2038, oh, that's a title and it's also a year, we look back and say, it went all well. We managed it, also with the help of architects. And then we could speculate in a completely different way, you know, what could it be? So we first build up some crisis, then, and then, let's say, projecting slightly into what little interventions could have changed. You no, know, because we know it looking back from 38. We, the only let's say, astonishing thing was all the crisis, let's say what could be a crisis? Maybe some war coming, oh, maybe some epidemics and... No, so we had to come up with a kind of script that in 2023, 20, we dated it, in the first, let's say, major war going on in Europe. And now it turns out we were just too late. All, our, let's, say, but let's say, what we looked into the future, we were too slow. And that means looking back from 2038 it was a little bit naive.
0: Roberta and Arna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Enjoy. <laughs> You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Arnold Brendel Huber and Roberta Jerschic. Special thanks this week to Sam Chermayeff. Thanks as always to Skanda and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time.